0: Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I have on the line Brittany Schaefer, or as she's colloquially known in libertarian anarchist circles, Schaefer Spawn. I think that's a fair way uh, to put it. And uh, I actually saw her article. Uh, you wrote an article called The Revolution is Over. Long live the revolution. And I guess like a lot of libertarians, anarchists, minarchists, you name it, even I guess the uh, freedom loving side of the Republican Party, it's been quite fascinating to see... What's been going on at the RNC convention recently? Um, uh, now I know some of the details. I don't know some of the other details. Uh, what's your big picture view on uh, what went down and and what it means?
1: Um, well, basically, I mean, what it looked like to me. I wasn't I wasn't there. I was watching it live. Um, I also have my my sister's husband is one of the delegates, so um, you know I, I sort of heard about what was going on. You know, last last time around, and and also this time around a little bit from from him. Um, you know, they, the, the RNC was just willing to break its own rules and then change the rules in order to avoid an outcome that it didn't want. And to me, it's just it's just one more example of how you're not going to change a corrupt system by working within the rules of that corrupt system because they'll just change the rules. I mean, if you start to have an impact, they'll fix it so you can't. And um, that's that's kind of my that's my take on what happened.
0: Yeah, I think people mistake Rules um, you know as as anarchists, we understand that rules are a sort of social consensus and ostracism and enforcement and common law and all that kind of good stuff stuff that actually means something to people. but in politics, rules are almost always ex post facto justifications for people doing what they wanted to do anyway. so if I understand it correctly, the, the Ron Paul supporters use some little known um, Republican rules to get i think eight states to put him forward to put Ron Paul forward as a nomination as a nomination. And oh, sorry, five states. Five states went forward with six. the nomination. I heard
1: that at the end
0: it was it six? Six. six. Yeah. Okay. So they got six. So at six. The... Yeah. Six of these states went forward with the nomination, and then live in the moment, the uh, committee decided to change the rules to require eight states. Now, if I also understand this correctly, the Ron Paul supporters. Um, So in Utah, he got almost no votes, but, you know, through jigging various rules that I don't even pretend to understand, it's like trying to memorize the monster manual, figuring out these kinds of things. But um, uh, they kind of jigged the rules to get these nominations and then they basically blocked him by, by raising the requirements live with no and also putting in rules in place that they could now change the rules when there's not a convention in practice as long as three quarters of the executive committee approve of it so they can basically just do whatever they want and justify it afterwards. And, and people have this mistake, I think. A lot of people who have tried to evade tax law and so on, they think that there's this magical rule that you can make the state bend to your will if you can find the right rule. But I think um, you know the purpose of the Wrong Paul campaign has kind of been twofold. One is, of course, there's the stated goal of getting elected, but the second is to educate people. And I think that people got quite an education about politics yesterday, Uh, perhaps the most powerful education about politics. What do you think?
1: I think so. And to watch, if you watch the video, I mean, there are videos all along from from the campaign four years ago, and also from this campaign of you know local conventions completely breaking the rules. You know, shutting all the Ron Paul supporters in one room and turning the lights out, and you know, shutting closing off the walling them off. I mean, just ridiculous things. And to see this on video, I think it's 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 absolutely educating for people. Um, and what was what was funny about about this this instance you know when they voted on on that rule change you can hear they they call for the ayes, they call for the nays and you know i was listening and it sounded to me like the nays had it um at the very least you would have called for a floor vote and they they didn't do that it was just just the the complete disregard for their own rules i think was was very educational and i think the point the point to bring home is that the rules don't apply to the people in power when you have a monopoly on power, the rules don't apply to you. They don't have to. There's, there's no agency. There's nothing that can enforce those rules against you if you are the sole enforcer. And I think that's, that's what people need to get. And I think that's what people are maybe starting to get.
0: I, I remember this as a kid. Um, I, I grew up uh, in England and Canada. And not so much in England, but here in Canada, uh, every now and then, the, the teachers would have a protest. They would not come to work. There'd be some sort of strike and so on. And um, I remember thinking even at the time, it's like, okay, so wait, if I don't like school or if I'm unhappy about something and I don't come to school, I will be arrested for truancy or, or there'll be some horrible negative consequences and so on. Right. But if the teachers, if the teachers don't like something about school and want it changed, why then? It's a, a legitimate strike. They're fighting for their rights. They're airing their grievances and everybody will be immensely sympathetic to them. I, and so I remember thinking even then, it's like, and, and the same thing. It's like, when, I remember when I first was reading about how teachers can't get fired. It's like, okay, so I, at the age of seven, can fail a test and have negative repercussions. Right. But the teacher who's giving the test cannot fail the test called teaching and get negative repercussions. Okay. So I think, right. I, I think the, the basic case for anarchy is just to remember what it was like being <laughs> a child in government schools. But that's, that's
1: very, but I, very accurate.
0: Now, do you, but do you think there is, I mean, there's a lot of emotion. And, and I, really, I really understand that emotion. I think that there's a lot of people, and this is what I liked about the article you wrote, and I'll, I'll post a link to this below the video. The article that you wrote is... Sort of a third way, uh, you know, the, because for a lot of people who are interested in freeing the world and, and having a less violent and hopefully nonviolent society free of political hierarchies and all that sort of nonsense, it's like it's politics or Despair. That, that's it. You know, it's politics or despair, and I think that's why people do throw so much of their energy into pursuing a, a political solution. And certainly, a political solution is nice and easy. You know, if, if Ron Paul can come in and 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 set you free, oh yeah, that's really nice. That's that. And boy, wouldn't that be great? That does, that means you don't have to have difficult conversations with people in your life. You don't have to think about you know whether you're spanking your kids and violating the non-aggression principle at home. There's all or, or maybe looking into batter or, or other forms of legal agorism. And, and but I really like the way that you were pointing out that it doesn't have to be politics or despair there is a third route I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that or a lot
1: yeah yeah in fact I'm actually I'm writing a follow-up article because I have had as as I expected to I've had a lot of comments saying well yeah this sounds great but you know what do you mean what what specifically do you suggest people do and I think first of all I think it's important to recognize that the act of voting the act of participating in in this sham is is not um it's it's not it's not going to be an effective way of getting what you want so, you know, you can fool yourself, you can pretend that that it is that you're actually accomplishing something. But for the most part, and I'll, and I'll make a distinction between you know national politics and local politics, because I do, I think as much as much as I abhor them, I think, you know, there are some good things that have come out of local politicking. And I'll just mention like the 10th Amendment Center, I think they've done some great things. So there is a little bit of a difference. But as far as, you know, getting someone elected to, to, to the, the role of, I think we've seen over time that this doesn't help to advance liberty. I mean, people have been have been trying to do it for decades. You know, as long as I've been around, and government keeps getting bigger, it keeps getting more intrusive. So the first thing to recognize is what you're doing now isn't working. So just because it's the only thing you know to do doesn't doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it's that it's actually effective. Um, so that's the first thing. My own suggestions. I mean, I I think the most important, well, two most important things. One is to start building that society. You know, there are things we can do now that are completely legal. Um, Some of them are legal, some may not be, but there are perfectly legal things we can start doing to start putting in place, you know, the infrastructure where the government is failing. I mean, I live in California and, you know, social services, education, it's it's starting to really crumble. And, you know, hear parents complaining about it and, and talking about it and all these cutbacks and how awful it is. Well that's an opportunity for those of us who think these things should be provided privately and through voluntary means to step in and start doing something. So, you know, create homeschooling groups, um, you know, take over a school that's been shut down and and turn it into a, a homeschooling collective. Um, you know, start, start feeding, feeding the homeless. You know, the, the government has, is, is not going to be able to do it. I think, you know, basic things like food and shelter could become you know serious needs for a lot of people. they already are for, for many people and you know if we start taking that over, start providing an infrastructure, start, start supplying the things that people have come to rely on government to supply, we'll be changing that infrastructure already. We'll be laying the groundwork for something um, for something very fundamentally different from what we have now. Um, police services you know, whatever kinds of genuine protection people can offer to each other, arbitration, things like that, that, you know, challenge the the view that this is something that has to be provided by government. I mean, the reality is that the police have sort of have become the enemy of the people that they're meant to be protecting. And again, I think more and more people are starting to see that too. Um, so just to, to start building these things that we think, you know, we – we anarchists, we non-political folk, we pro-liberty people look around and we say, hey, you know, government shouldn't be doing that. Private people should be doing that. That should be involuntarily. That shouldn't be a monopoly. Well, we're in a position now, and I think, I think that's going to become more true as the economy gets worse and as the government, you know, starts to be, become even more unable to provide what it's been providing, we're in a unique opportunity to start making that vision come to life, making that vision real. Um, so I think we need to start doing that. And then, sort of the second prong of of what I think is is the best approach to bring about liberty. You know, the biggest obstacle to liberty is is the belief that so many people hold in their minds that government is necessary. That it's and when I say government, I mean a monopoly state. That it's necessary and that it acts in our interests, and more and more, you know, if the evidence is piling up that that neither of those assertions is true. But I think it's still a it's still a small minority of us who who can see that clearly, and I think it's our job to educate, you know, the rest of the people. Enough of them to come to realize. Hey, wait a second! This 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 institution called the monopoly state is is something that it's not helpful to society. It's not helpful to, to civilization. It's actually counterproductive. It's actually it's actually disastrous. You know, when you look historically, it's actually very destructive to peaceful coexistence. Um, so those two things, building building very real things, you know, on a local level for the most part, I think um, that can that can help to be the foundation for for what comes. You know after the state. And then just educating people. I think educating people is is so important because there are just these insane <laughs> beliefs that people have, you know, in the face of all the evidence in the face of history, they still want to believe in in government. And um, you know, I think I think it's 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 our job and it's a big job to to educate them otherwise,
0: yeah, it's funny how libertarians are skeptical, if not downright hostile to every single government program except politics. But politics is just another government program and it produces exactly the same thing as every other government program, which is the opposite of what you want. And, you know, I have two sort of minor tests. Uh, get your thoughts on these. The first, of course, is if somebody tells me they can list, lift to 100 pounds, then I'm going to give them, but they look kind of frail. I'll give them a five-pound weight first and say, hey, can you lift this? And you can't. if you can't lift that, then obviously you can't lift the 100. And uh, you could really argue that classical liberalism since the mid-19th century, or you could really argue all the way back to Adam Smith and the founding fathers a couple of hundred years ago, that you know, rhetoric and philosophy and, and um politics has been used to try and restrain the size and power of the government. You start with the very smallest government in history. The American government has now become the very largest government in history. That's exactly what you would expect from a government program. You try to get rid of the war on drugs, drugs become more prevalent. Try to, get, uh, try to have a war on poverty, poverty becomes entrenched. Try to have financial stability, end up with booms, busts, and debts. So government program violence always produces the opposite of what you want, and certainly the political process is participating in a violent oligarchy. So, yeah, the fact that it has produced less liberty and uh, the biggest government the world has ever seen is entirely in line with every other government program. And the other thing, too, is that I think people underestimate the degree of corruption and immorality in the state. I mean, I've never seen, uh, you know, you could (laughs) you could ask a libertarian or libertarian could say this program. It's like, okay, well, we want to take on the federal government, which, according to the anarchist, is, you know, biggest gang of legal criminals the world has ever seen. But let's start a little smaller than that. Let's just join some local mafia group and try and turn it into a charity uh, or try to get it to at least reduce, you know, the the number of hits and murders and, and kneecappings and, and extortion and whatever. But of course, nobody would think, well, you can join the mafia and turn it into a charity, but we still somehow believe that we can join a much bigger and more unpleasant organization and turn it t- toward the light. Uh, it just seems, it just seems strange. Of course, I'm, I'm a big one for testability of theories and uh, I just don't see anyone trying to test it on a smaller scale. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's, and, and, you know, I think it has been tested. I think, you know, the 20th century alone showed how disastrous, you know, big government can be, and yet we're still left with this myth that there can be, you know, minimal, a minim- the minimal state, that there can be a small government that we can restrain it. And I think what's becoming clear is, and and the U.S. is perhaps the the best example of this. What's becoming clear is that anytime you have a monopoly, and it's funny because you know the, the people who who are the staunchest defenders of government you know, are terrified of monopoly in the private sector. You know, they they <laughs> are just, they're, that they're, that's anathema to them. No, we can't have that, and we have to have all kinds of regulations and anything that even looks like a monopoly, it, you know, whereas they have no problem with granting mon- a monopoly to, to a single body to perform some of the most important tasks in mean, protection of our lives and liberties. You know, why, if, you, if you're afraid of a monopoly in your phone services, why would you grant someone a monopoly in protecting your life? It's just, it, it's crazy
0: Well and one other thing people say is well you know if let's say that we could get rid of the government well, Uh, you know, what's to stop another government from coming back? We have another government. It's like, okay, so the worst outcome from my system is your system again? I mean, are you kidding me? That's not even a reasonable argument. Anyway, sorry. Just my little minor thing, but go on.
1: (laughs) That's funny, yeah. Um, And there are plenty of people, you know, there are plenty of theorists, you know, Rothbard and um, David Friedman and um, you know, Hoppe,
0: lots of... And your daddy.
1: And my dad and my dad too, yes. Um, Bob Murphy also has done some great stuff on you know, really going into the nitty gritty of the specifics of how it might work. And obviously, it's not how it would work, because nobody has a crystal ball. But just to sort of to, to go after some of the objections, you know, the people who, who insist, you know, it couldn't work, or it would, it would necessarily go back to, to being what we have today. There's a lot of work out there. There's a lot of, you know, very detailed um, exploration into how it in fact could work.
0: Yeah, and I've certainly dabbled my own toe in that water, but fundamentally it doesn't matter, and who cares? I mean, it's like saying, well, a hundred years after we end slavery, how's cotton going to get picked? Exactly. I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter. The fact is slavery is immoral, and we should stop pointing guns at people and keeping them in shackles, and we should stop selling off the unborn and starting foreign wars and indebting everyone and their daughter and have a Ponzi scheme where the old prey on the young who are more vulnerable. I mean, it doesn't matter to me how it all works when we stop pointing guns at each other. Let's just climb out of this Tarantino movie and get into something a little more animated.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, and that's, and that's the other thing that's kind of, you know, for me coming from a perspective of, of looking at politics from a, from a moral standpoint, um, it's sort of become more clear over the years that most people don't, most people just don't ask that question. Um, and whether it's because they've been, you know, indoctrinated in in public schools, or that's just how they're raised or because I'm weird, I don't know, but most people don't Even ask that question. It's not that they. It's not that they examine and say, "Oh, yes, you know, it's wrong to use coercive violence." But it's worth it because blah blah blah. They don't even ask the question. They don't even confront the immorality of what they're proposing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I don't remember anybody when I was a kid saying, "Well, of course, if women go into the workforce, who's going to raise the children and keep house and cook the food?" Uh, Therefore, women got to stay home. I mean, no, it was (laughs) anyway, that's it. It, The the consequences of a moral decision are actually not relevant. And people but people make up these negative consequences uh, as kind of a ghost story to scare away the, uh, you know, approaching lights of freedom because they don't know what's going to happen. Anyone who claims to know uh, how roads will be provided in the absence of a state, I want to know. Just tell me what the price Apple stock's going to be tomorrow and let's be a billionaire. (laughs) um, uh, Nobody can predict the future. You make your decisions based on principles, not on consequences. Otherwise, you can just make up whatever scare stories you want to prevent you from doing anything.
1: Exactly. And that's that's, that's another important point, is that you can always make up scare stories. You can always, you know, come up with some, you know, overblown, Hypothesis that could happen, you know, that, oh, sure, you know, we could all revert to, you know, go back to living in the caves and starting eating each other and, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, you can always concoct some some rationale for why something can't work. And I think that's true of anything. I think that's true of any human endeavor. Um, but if you look at the success stories, if you look at, I mean, Hong Kong, for example, I lived in Hong Kong for a long time, and it just, you know, it occurs to me that if, if someone had – proposed in advance you know advance of hong kong's success that they had proposed that you know go out to this this rock you know out near china and desolate rock nobody there nothing no no resources other than the harbor and that you know 50 years later um 60 years later that it would start to become this successful hub and that and you know actually save millions of people's lives from from what was going on in china that it would become the phenomenal success story it was you'd have all kinds of arguments for why that was impossible you have all kinds of <laughs> and if it had been up to vote you know if it had been up to you know the electorate or anybody to decide whether you know hong kong was going was going to exist or not um, it would never have happened because there are always scare stories there's always there's always there are always reasons why something can't happen and like you said you, if, if you don't have have principles if you don't have a if you don't make your decisions from some principled standpoint you know you're kind of just you're kind of just floating and 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 yeah you'll buy into those you'll buy into the scare stories and
0: well the other thing too is that the people of the future have no voice whereas the people who are going to suffer in the present have a very loud voice and and there's no question that the transition from coercion to voluntarism causes suffering i mean just as all the people who had invested in slaves and moving slaves and selling slaves and catching slaves they all suffered a lot when slavery was ended and the dependent classes, and I mean, there's going to be suffering. All of the uh, all of the big corporations hardwired into the frontal lobes and back pockets of the politicians, they're all going to go through a lot of suffering when there's going to be a lot of transition. And they make a lot of noise, but it's the unborn, it's the, the kids of the future who have no voice. And that's, of course, why they're sold off to bankers for the sake of bribing um, the electorate in the here and now. But the principles actually include uh, the future, whereas if we just listen to the cacophony of the present, then we'll never change anything anything, because change always has, you know, dispersed benefits and concentrated costs. And so all the concentrated cost people who step on the landmine of change yell that their legs are gone and, oh my God, we got to go and appease these people. And it just becomes this, uh, it, it is not exactly an orchestra. It's, you know, one person yelling in your ear and 10,000 violins down a block. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And, you know, it's important to remember, too, that the people... I think the interests that would suffer if we were to you know snap our fingers and have you know eliminate the state tomorrow the people who would suffer the most are the ones who've been inflicting suffering on others um, you know they they're the ones who've been who've been stealing the wealth that other people have have built up they're the ones who start the wars they're the ones who keep the police state in, in force so yeah there there are people who would lose but I I kind of don't feel too bad for them because they're, you know, they've gotten where they are by hurting other people and by stealing and by, you know, violence.
0: Yeah. So the guy who sells the slaves slave whipping paraphernalia is, is out of a job. And I think we will not cry any tears over his suffering. I mean, there is a dependent class and people who've had six kids based upon welfare and public schools and so on. And there will be a transition for those people, of course, however, that's managed, would probably have to be intergenerationally. But but yeah, I mean, this is why uh, you you cannot make an argument from consequences and really affect political change. The, the benefits, as we all know, are way too concentrated. The costs are way too dispersed. And if you reverse that equation, uh, the media, of course, will find whoever, gets, whoever suffers from change, the media will trumpet them and they'll be teary-eyed and slowly walking down the street to sad violin music and they'll tweak everyone's... I mean, there's way too much propaganda for, I think, any kind of change, which, you know, I sort of argue that it's a multi-generational thing, which... If you look at uh, female emancipation, if you look at the end of slavery, 100, 150 years, and I think we're pretty early on in it, and trying to, yeah, just trying to grab the reins of power, or you know, it's, you know, we all got to be uh, a little less um, Sarah Mann and a little more Frodo. Ooh, there's a reference that my listeners may get, but yours, yours may not. <laughs> Let go of the ring. Let go of the ring. We can't get the ring and, and hold on to it. And I think, I mean, Ron Paul himself. I mean, he he knows that they'll be suffering, uh, and uh, if people change, and uh, yet he still funnels tons of money to his own constituents. He doesn't want to ask them to suffer the financial consequences of less statism. So it seems a little precious for him to demand it of others. Sorry, I don't mean to take over with my rant. I just <laughs> wanted to sort of mention that
1: um, something something you said about. I mean, there. There they're you know, about there being innocent victims as well and you know, people who've become dependent on the state. If the state were suddenly taken away, they would suffer. Well the reality is that they're gonna suffer anyway. The reality is the state is taking is taking that away already. I mean, as I said in my state, you know, California, there are already cutbacks and of course the first thing to get cut back are the things that people are dependent on. It's not congressmen's salaries, it's not
0: oh yeah bonuses,
1: it's not their you know, their private jets. It's it's the services. It's it's you know fire, maybe police, probably not police, um, social services, schools, things like that. And I just think it's a it's a tremendous opportunity for those of us who believe that those things should be done privately to step in and start doing it. And you know, take over that role because the state is failing. And I think the lesson to be to be learned here is, you know, it's not a transition to anarchy that causes this failure. It's it's the natural consequences of the way the state operates and its economic policies that essentially strip the nation, strip the the, you know, the people of, of, the, of a country, the wealth that they, that they've created. It impoverishes them. And then at some point it can't even provide the services that it's that it claims to um so i i just i see that as a real opportunity
0: yeah no i agree i, I was just thinking when you were talking earlier about living in california I, you probably may be too young but um there was a film in the 70s with christopher reeve the one of the first superman films and in it gene hackman was going to reprogram some missiles to go and land on the san andreas fault and california was going to fall into the sea and so on uh, you know the, the worst possible reboot or remake of that film but more politically accurate would be uh, to um Uh, to simply have missiles made out of public sector pensions, and pretty much the same thing will occur from an economic standpoint. That sort of popped in my mind, and this is what people say. You know, well, oh, you don't care about the poor? It's like, well, yes, of course we do. Uh, What we want is a managed transition rather than the abrupt cliffhanging trapeze death trap that's going to happen when the government simply runs out of money to pay people. I mean, that is not going to be a... a, um, uh, a gentle transition at all, and uh, we can do something more managed, or we can just, you know, completely hit the wall at Mach 12. And uh, I think, uh, you know, turning things a little would be better than this faceplant.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and what happens with with faceplant? What happens when you know when it's when it's abrupt? If there's an abrupt change like that, is those who those who favor violence and and a coercive state, you know, they they end up on top. They end up you know, getting to say, see, this is what happens, and you need us to come in and take control. Even though what they're going to do is going to make things worse, they get, as you said, the propaganda benefit. It makes them look necessary. So,
0: Freedom has failed. We have tried it. And now we just need a strong arm who's going to make the trains run on time. And I need food tomorrow. I don't care about all these abstracts. And, oh, yeah, I mean, this is uh, history is just a grim repetition. It's like a disco ball that never stops and never changes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the sad thing is that... That so few people listen, learn from it. That so few people, you know, understand. So 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 many people think that we actually have tried freedom, and that it's freedom that's failed rather than intervention.
0: Oh, but Brittany, don't you know that it's it was financial deregulation that caused it? It's nothing to do with the Fed, and it's nothing to do with shielding corporations from the consequences of their own decisions. It's nothing to do with financial bribery from Wall, from Wall Street to, uh, to the Capitol building. Uh, it was, you know, the free market. Alan Greenspan said so. It's got to be true. Anyway, listen. I want to make sure that uh, I get get want to get this video out today, and I really want to thank you for your time. A very very enjoyable chat. Uh, welcome back to. Uh, the continent of exciting political challenges. And uh, also want to make sure that you get your um, vital statistics out to my listeners uh, and, you know, recommend certainly the stuff of yours that I've read. uh, Very sharp, good writer, clear thinker. And um, uh, so if you w- want to give your websites and, and mention the books that you've uh, written, uh, I definitely want to point some people your way if I can.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so my website is um, um Weird spelling, B-R-E-T-I-G-N-E. Blame my parents. So Um And if you go there, you'll see um, it's basically my blog. But then I've also got there are a couple books I've written. One is Memoirs of a Gaijin, which is sort of my memoirs of, of the time I spent in a Tokyo Gaijin house. Um, the other one is why mommy loves the state and it's horribly overpriced on amazon so i recommend going to lulu where you can download it for free Um, and then my latest thing is uh it's actually a web comic series called urban yogini and it's about a superhero who can't use violence um and the first episode is up i'm working on getting funding for the future episodes so yes um
0: the house that you were in, um, of course, I'm completely up on this Japanese lingo. But for my listeners who aren't, uh, what what kind of house is that that you were talking about? So
1: it's a gaijin house. is um, It's like a hostel. Um, it's it's where gaijin foreigners um, live while they're living in Japan. There there are lots of you know little gaijin houses, and it's basically a place where you can get a cheap room, um, you know, cheap by Tokyo standards, a cheap room, um, you know, temporarily. It's kind of hard to rent. Short term in Tokyo, um, there's there are a lot of weird restrictions, but so it's basically it's a, it's a kind of like still, but you have sort of your own room usually and shared kitchen, that kind of thing.
0: Uh, OK, great. Well, thanks again. I guess we'll see each other at Libertopia, Libertopia.org, um, late October 23rd, I think 24th uh, in, in San Diego. And um, a real, real pleasure chatting with you. Of course, say hi to your dad and um, we'll talk soon.
1: OK, great to talk to you. Thanks.
0: Goodbye.